Good morning, everybody. Let's start with a word of prayer. Um, Father, thank you for uh, this morning to gather. Uh, thank you for the ability to do this, the uh, restoring of um, normalcy in our country. Lord, for the, the grace that you've poured upon us, we certainly, as a nation, do not deserve that uh, the pandemic is, is really um, subsiding here in our nation. And uh, Lord, we pray for India where it's surging. And Lord, we pray that you would use the suffering, the death, the, the trauma that's there, Lord, to call them to you, Lord, as a nation. Would you spark revival through this in India? And may we see a great turning to you so that people will find more than just relief from disease, but Lord, deliverance from sin. And Father, we want to pray for Rachel Lafoon's brother, Dick, uh, who uh, apparently had a stroke, but by your mercy, by your grace to him, it was only perhaps anxiety or um, stress. And uh, so, Lord, thank you for that good news. And I pray, Lord, for him and his family that they'd um, help him work through whatever is, is uh, causing these problems and deliver him from that. And Lord, we also pray for Lori Lafoon's boyfriend, um, Evan, who crashed on a, a dirt bike and broke his collarbone. Lord, would you be with him and uh, lead him through the doctors? Lord, I pray that the Lafoon clan uh, people we know who love you dearly would uh, show to Evan the love of Christ. And Lord, um, one of the things I keep hearing about how to minister in, in uh, these uh, odd times we live in is, is by having a compelling community. And Lord, uh, if we know the Lafoons, we know that they are a compelling community of, of people. So would you use the love that is poured out on Evan to um, waken him to his need for you? to help him to see that there is uh, something to be said for following you and uh, have, have mercy on him. And Lord, as we've prayed for uh, India, Lord, I want to pray for our nation and for our valley and for our city and for our church. And Lord, for me, would you spark revival? Lord, I pray that you would light a little fire in my heart to remind me to chronically and repeatedly pray that you would bring revival. And Lord, I pray that as a church body, we would be seeking that, that we would want to know the Holy Spirit working mightily throughout this land. And Lord, um, we, we ask this not so that our numbers will grow and our church will be huge and prosperous and all of those things, but Lord, because we want more people to know who Jesus Christ is and to delight in him. And so Lord, would you use the pandemic and whatever purposes you've had in that to accomplish great things in this nation and bring about, uh, once again, a turning to Christ when things seem so impossible. And Lord, we pray that you'd be with us now as we look into your word. Lord, help us to see and to understand, to believe what you have to say to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, um, I don't, most of you are probably not old enough, but I don't know, we're kind of an aging community now, so maybe you have seen Muhammad Ali fight or at least videos of Muhammad Ali fight. And as difficult as it is to say, he was a bragger and he would say he was the greatest, but he was, he was just an amazing fighter. And I'm not a big boxing guy. I don't really care for it that much, but to watch Ali in the ring was an amazing thing. And Ali's greatest asset were his feet. He could move, it was like dancing. And his opponents would throw a jab and he would just lean back and it'd swing right past him like he was, he was totally in charge. And then every once in a while, Ali would lean in a little bit and just 
poke him on the chin, just a touch, just kind of like a light tap, letting him know I'm here. And then when his opponent wasn't expecting it, Ali would lean in and flatten him. There's that wonderful picture of him standing over George Foreman. He had just knocked him out, the Frilla and Manila. The problem with Ali's opponents were if they didn't keep an eye on that man, if they weren't sure that he could do what he could do, then they might think, hey, I can win this. And so the, the idea there is when you're facing an opponent, don't confuse won't with can't. That, that's a dangerous place to be, is when you confuse somebody who won't, Ali would take his time, tap a little bit, chuck a jive, and then flatten you. Because it wasn't that he couldn't, it was I'm not ready at this point. I will do it when I'm good and ready. And he was the world champ. He was, he was the greatest. I, I would say unarguably the greatest. And what we're going to see this morning as we turn to this really well-known story of Nebuchadnezzar and his giant image and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace is we have to remember the difference between can't and won't because Nebuchadnezzar got it wrong and he learned a very important lesson. So let's take a look. I had Dan read just the central portion, but I want to preach through the whole chapter. Uh, we'll just have to kind of move a little quick through it. So verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, the Greek Old Testament says after 18 years or in the 18th year. So what happened in chapter two and what happens here is probably about 15 years apart. If the Greek Old Testament is correct, the Greek translation is right. Um, the Hebrew, or in this case, well, yeah, the Hebrew, we'll call it Hebrew because um, even though it's uh, Aramaic at this point, but still, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament doesn't tell us that. So uh, we're not positive, but it seems to have been a long time. That's important. That's not just a trivial point of let's, let's argue about the text because the way the last chapter ended, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged God that he is God of gods and Lord of kings. And he seems to have forgotten that. Uh, what we'll hear him say today is he seems to have forgotten that point. So it's been a while. Let me just fill you in what's been going on if this is 15 years later. So last week I told you about his triumphs in the military. He, he uh, defeated Egypt. He marched through Syria. He wiped out Jerusalem. And then he returned to Babylon. Well, since then, there have been a couple of more conquests. There were people in the eastern portion of his kingdom who stopped paying tribute. You don't stop paying tribute. The king doesn't like when you stop sending him money and food and all that stuff. And so Nebuchadnezzar has marched out, and he's, he's invaded again his eastern kingdom, and he's got them back in line paying their tribute. Um, very recently, if this is 15 years later, very recently, within a couple of years, he's had to put down what was a massive or at least a significant uh, rebellion in Babylon itself. And one of the historians said that there was great loss of life. So looking back on his career, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm really successful. I'm really doing it. Um, nobody is able to stand against me. So what he does is he builds a golden image. Now, you remember the, the um, dream that he had last week? He was the golden head. So now the gold has gone to his head, and he has built this whole giant image to show how great he is. Um, it is 60 cubits tall and six cubits wide. So a cubit is about a foot and a half or something like that. It is nine feet wide. 
and it is 90 foot tall. It's, it's not 90 foot tall. It's as tall as a nine foot uh, or nine story building. That's huge. And it's covered in gold. That's a lot of gold. So the pictures you see in the flannel graphs and stuff are an image of a man of gold. It's probably not. The, the dimensions just wouldn't work well for a man of gold. What it probably was, was there was a huge base. They'd have to have a really strong base to set this thing on. So there'd be a, a brick base that it sat on. And then this kind of a spire. And what was probably at the top, there may have been things at the top, maybe this gods or, or him or who knows what. But it was tall and thin was the point. Um, so he builds this in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Um, this should sound a little bit familiar. Something else significant was built in this general area uh, a while ago. What happened was after Noah's flood, when um, God then tells Noah, he gives him his covenant with Noah, and he says, go out, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. And some things happen, but the people start moving and they get to this area. They get to Shinar, which is near Babylon. The plain of Dura is probably in that general area. And they say at that point, you know what? We're not going to fill the earth because if we do, our name will be scattered everywhere. We're going to build here. And what do they build? They build a tower reaching up to the heavens for their name. And God comes and he knocks that down. So this is, this is something about this area just kind of breeds that kind of hubris. Um, it, it's happened before. It's ripe for human pride. And so that's what, that's what Nebuchadnezzar has done. Is he's built this giant monument to himself and to his gods. Because at the time, there was no distinction between church and state. As a matter of fact, from my understanding, there was really no distinction between church and state until the American Revolution. When the Americans said, no established religion and no um, uh, restraint of religion. Keep those two things separate. Before that, if you were in England, if you were born and raised in England, you were Anglican. That's the way it was. There were exceptions, but generally speaking, if you were born and raised in Germany, you were Lutheran because that's the way it was. And you could keep marching back in time. Um, the, the link between church and state was tremendous. So for Nebuchadnezzar to set this up and to tell people to worship it and to serve his gods means I want you to be loyal to me. Uh, this is my religion. This is my state. I'm the king. That's the way it is. We'll see more of that in this next section. So verses three through six. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you shall fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning furnace. So here's, here's Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in a snapshot, in a picture. Um, we're going to hear satraps, prefix, da, 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 that list over and over and over again. It repeats constantly through this. And so who are all these people? Who are these folks? Well, what they are is they're the, the magistrates. They're the government officials from all sorts of different regions around his, his uh, empire. That, that it's not like they're, you know, all functioning within the palace or something. These are people scattered throughout the empire. And that's why the command goes out to, oh, peoples. 
nations and languages. Their leaders are representing them here. So what we see is this huge display in front of Nebuchadnezzar and in front of the image that he's built of his kingdom. And so the theory is that he's done this in order to, in, in order to uh, strengthen unity within the kingdom. It's really important that he holds this group of people together. We've already heard that, hey, they tried to stop paying tribute and there was a rebellion and he's like, we can't do that. That has to be united. And so this is gonna unite everybody. We'll have one common religion and all come together and that'll, that'll remind him who they are. Oh, and by the way, if they don't, they'll get thrown in a furnace, you know, just to kind of cement that, that image. Um, that idea of being thrown in a furnace was actually a fairly common way to punish people. Jeremiah mentioned that people were thrown into a furnace. So burning folks was a common way of punishing people. Um, the, the, the instruments, um, we're not exactly sure what some of them are. I love that the fact that the bagpipe is right in the middle there. Um, can you imagine what that would sound like? All these varieties of instruments start playing. We kind of tend to think, you know, this is a beautiful symphony going on or something. I'm pretty sure that this was a loud noise because what it was supposed to do was signal to the people, okay, now drop down and worship, not entertain them. And let's, let's sing um, just as I am, you know, to the bagpipe and the trigon and whatever else is there. Um, when we went to Burma, they did a Burmese night and they took us and they fed us Burmese food and they had a Burmese band playing Burmese music. And I was sitting across from Ramey at the time and we were talking about it. It sounded like somebody had backed a dump truck up onto the stage full of musical instruments and tipped it and just bang. And I was like, I don't get this. This is really driving me nuts. And Ramey tried to talk me through it and explain, well, you know, we're used to it to an octave scale and there's pentatonic scales and our timing, you know, it's like, so that's what I think of when I, when I picture this happening is, you know, a truckload of musical instruments coming up and bang. Now get down and worship. So therefore, verse, uh, verse seven, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it worked, right? He, he's, he's looking out across the plain of Dura. He sees this giant golden image gleaming in the sunlight and all the nations bowing down before it. He's like, this has worked, this is good. I, I will cement my, my kingdom. Perhaps he's thinking of that dream that he had that Daniel interpreted for him and said, you're the head of gold. And so he's thinking, this is it. I'm, I'm, my kingdom doesn't go away. This is as good as it gets. The next one's not gonna be as pretty. So he must've been pretty, pretty pleased with himself at this point. I, would, I can't imagine Nebuchadnezzar not being pleased with himself. When I think of the man, that's all I can think of is how pleased with himself he must've been but it was short-living, <laughs> it was short-lived. It wasn't gonna last. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now in the NIV, the, the word Chaldeans is translated as magicians. And uh, the reason for that is it could be used either way, but I think it's best to keep it in mind that it's Chaldeans doing it because they accused the Jews, not the magicians accused the governors, but the Jews. So. His, his, um, his joy is short-lived. They show up and they got bad news for him. Verses uh, nine through 12. And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, don't you get tired of this? <laughs> it's repeated so many times. I, I'm pretty sure Daniel did it almost for comic effect. Kind of like, look at how ridiculous this is. 
uh, all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's a serious charge. These men just came and said, King, while you're feeling great about how you've got the, the uh, kingdom united, bad news. These Jews aren't doing it. And by the way, you appointed them in a position of power, and they're not obeying you. And so they, they bring this news to the king. Now, the king is probably not dumb enough to just go kill him now because he's been in power for a while. He's been brought up in a royal family. He knows that intra-court politics are rough. And so instead of just acting immediately, verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. Bring them in. I'm going to interrogate them myself. But notice he's not passive about this. He is in a furious rage. He is not used to not getting his way. So they brought the men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? or worship the gold image I have set up. So he's checking them out. He's saying, is this true? I've heard this report about you and I wanna make sure that it's true. But he gives them a chance. He, he, these are probably very successful young men. He gives them a chance. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pride, fall down and worship the idol that I have made well and good. If you do not worship, you shall be cast into a burning, ferny, burning fiery furnace and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? There is the problem. He is so sure of himself. He is so filled with his success that he thinks God can't do this. He is confused, can't with won't. So what he's saying here is, look, I have marched against all of these nations. And remember earlier, I said, you can't separate church and state back then. I marched against these nations. I invaded their gods' temples. I carried their gods off to the temples of my gods. There is no god that is more powerful than me right now. I am it. So he tells Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you don't do what I'm telling you, nobody can deliver you, not even the gods, period. They haven't so far. They're not going to in the future. So that's the problem. That's the difficulty is he's missed the fact that God hasn't defeated him and confused it with the fact that God can't defeat him. And he's going to learn the lesson by the end of this, but right now he, he thinks can't and won't equal the same thing. It's an easy mistake to make because we tend to think if God doesn't answer my prayers, that means he can't or he doesn't like me or something. There's something wrong here. But the fact is, in the Bible, it's repeatedly told how God doesn't deliver his people. It happens again and again. Jesus told the Pharisees regularly, complained to them that your fathers killed the prophets. They killed, they actually killed the prophets. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is a really good example. Listen to this. And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword and made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Great news. This is, this is great. You can overcome all of these difficulties. Keep reading. Yet, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Well, they must be the ones that God doesn't care for. They must be the people God doesn't love because he, he doesn't act on their behalf. Of whom the world is not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. These are the saints of whom the world is not worthy. Don't confuse, won't. God didn't deliver these. They were sawn in two. They were actually cut with a saw in two. And God let it happen. Don't confuse won't with can't. Jesus didn't. Listen to this. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is from Matthew 26. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you're able? No, not what I'm will, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew it was possible for this cup to pass from him. But God didn't, it wasn't that he couldn't, it was that he wouldn't. And so a little bit further, when the mob shows up, and one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the ear off the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put away your sword back into its place. For all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And that he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus didn't confuse, won't, and can't. He, 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 uh, he bowed to his father's will and did what he could. He had the authority. He had the power to call down 12 legions of angels. And one angel wiped out 100,000 Syrians. Can you imagine what 12 legions of angels would do? That's the kind of power that's available to Jesus. It's not that he can't, it's that he won't. And why? Why won't he? The last thing he said is the clue. Should this, how should the scriptures be fulfilled? The scriptures reveal to us God's will. God has a purpose in delivering some and not delivering others. He has a reason for doing it. There, there's, there's the can. He can do it. But for his purposes, he won't do it. Now, there are plenty of things that God can't do. Don't, don't think that he's, he can do everything. God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19, Titus 1, 2, Hebrews 6, 18. God cannot lie. God cannot be tempted. James 1, 3, nor can he lead people into temp, or uh, tempt people to sin. God cannot deny himself. 2 Peter 2, 13. God cannot sin or look upon sin, Hebrews 1.13. So there's plenty of things that God can't do. Don't confuse that with what he won't do. That's what Nebuchadnezzar has done. Nebuchadnezzar has blurred that distinction, and it's fatal for him. We've got to keep that straight. So then what happens is Nebuchadnezzar is filled with, oh, wait, I missed a, missed a chunk here. Shadrach, there we go, uh, 316, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the, and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They won't do it. They, they know that God can deliver them, but they're going, walking to this, this difficult situation saying, God can, but there's no guarantee he will. They did not read, apparently, Joel Olstein's book, Your Best Life Now. If they had just believed strong enough, they would have been delivered from this. They read something much better than Olstein's book. They read the truth. That God can deliver, and if he doesn't, he's still powerful. He's still able to do these things. So they go to the furnace with this truth in mind. Now, here's the next section, verses 13 through 20, or 19 through 23. Then Nebuchadnezzar, filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it's usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they threw them into the fiery burning furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the fire was overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Now, God could have stopped that. He could have done any number of things. He could have sent an earthquake. He could have sent a hailstorm. He could have sent a drenching rain that put out the fiery furnace. Any number of things, but he didn't. He could, but he didn't. Now, when it says that they fell bound into the fiery furnace, um, what is probably going on is they would build these furnaces. It looked like a chimney. You know what the chimneys are? Those, those patio things with the tall smokestack on top? That causes the heat to rise and to draw air into it. And so that air being drawn in would automatically make the hot fire hotter and hotter. So this would be a giant fiery furnace. It was probably, my guess is it was used there on the plains of Dura to make the bricks, to burn the bricks that they would use for the base of the statue, to smelt the gold that they would plate the statue with and all of that. So there's this furnace quite handy sitting right here. Now they would often build them right next to a hill so that there would be some trees and things that they could cut down and throw into the top as fire. So the top would be big and it would be kind of like a, a nuclear power plant, you know, those, those cooling towers, that shape, so that it would draw the air in. And then the opening at the bottom would be rather small so that you could slide things in and out to, to heat it. So that's what it means when it says that they threw them in. They probably threw them from the top. But the thing was so stinking hot, seven times hotter than normal. Now, it's not like they had a thermostat and went click, 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 click. There we go. We got it. They had to chuck more uh, kindling, more, more um, fuel into that fire. But it got to the point where it was so hot that it killed the men who were throwing them in. Now, at this point in the story, we kind of rush to the deliverance. We get to, hey, they didn't burn. But stop for a moment and put yourself in their shoes and think about what they're facing. This is a scary thing for them. Even though they're trusting God, even though they're believing God, they believe God that they believe God could deliver them, but they didn't have any assurance that he would deliver them. So they're facing a burning death, which is not a good way. I used to have nightmares as a kid about burning to death. Blame my parents because I used to play with fire and they showed me pictures of people who burned. And so it was really traumatic. 
But it was scary. That was a scary thing. And, and to face burning like that must have been horrible. So they stand before the most powerful man in the world, the strongest, the best army, the richest, all of this, and he is red-faced angry at them. He is livid. His veins are popping out on his head. He is so mad at them. That much power is standing and facing them and accusing them. He orders his strongest warriors, the mighty men of his army, get me the best, the strongest, the most strapping, and these brutes come charging up and bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He orders that the furnace be stoked, probably hotter than it had ever been. And they're standing there and they hear this. The, the furnace that we're going to get thrown into just got hotter. These warriors drag these three men across the plain of Dura, heading to the furnace, and they go through the assembled crowd. The nations, the peoples, the languages, watching as these men go. They're probably jeering at them. We bowed down. Why couldn't you, loser? See if your God can deliver you. The mighty men come and they toss Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, and then they succumb to the fire. It's probable that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't know that the brutes that carried him up there died because they would have been heading in when those guys lost it. So as they're going into the fire and the heat is coming up, they have no assurance at this moment. They're, they're terrified that, or they could be terrified that this is the end for them. Can God deliver them? They won't know for another second or so. And so what happens is, then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? And they answered to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So in the most dramatic way possible, God did deliver them. He could have stopped them getting into the, into the fire to begin with, but he didn't. Not that he couldn't, he didn't. He could have stopped them being thrown into it, but he didn't. Instead, they get to the bottom, they hit the floor, and then they stand up. And the only thing that's on them that has been burned are the bonds that held them. Other than that, they're walking around in the midst, it says, in the midst of the fire, not outside the fire, not that the fire was put out, in the midst of the fire. I can't imagine what that view would have been like. That would have been incredible. They're walking around in the midst of the fire, and there is a fourth person with them who looks like, according to Nebuchadnezzar, a son of the gods. So can God save? Yes, he can. Can God deliver? Absolutely, he can. Will he always do it exactly the way you think he will? That would be nice. The good news is he's much smarter than we are. And so he will deliver in the way that is most appropriate, even when that delivery is being sawn in two. It, it, it's terrifying, but can you trust that God, that who in the end will do that? Now, one of the things that it says here is that the fourth man looked like a son of the gods. And often people say, well, that's Jesus. That's pre-incarnate Jesus walking around in the fire with them. And it could be. I, I believe that Jesus has shown up numerous times in the Old Testament. Um, I think he was in the burning bush when, when uh, Moses spoke. And the reason we say that is because John chapter 1 says, nobody has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God, he has revealed him. 
So nobody has seen God. It's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who's revealed him. So it could be that this is the second person of the Trinity. I'm a little hesitant to say that, to affirm that, for a few reasons. Usually, in the Old Testament, the second person of the Trinity, when he makes a pre-incarnate appearance, is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And that's not, that's not mentioned in Daniel. Now, of course, these are Nebuchadnezzar's words, but Daniel never explains that. Often when the angel of the Lord speaks, he speaks as if he is God. He doesn't say God said, he says, I say to you. And he doesn't speak in this. We don't hear anything from him. The one that I think is a dead giveaway is sometimes he accepts worship, which no angel in heaven, unfallen, would ever do. And then what we get here is just this really limited description of who he is. So it's possible that this is merely an angel. <laughs> That's no big deal. It's only an angel. Come on. <laughs> it could be the pre-incarnate Christ, but it's, it's an angel. Either way, what this fourth person represents is God is with them in the midst of the fire. God's presence is there with them. These angels don't just go do what they want. God in heaven dispatches them. You go do this. You go do that. And so this is God is aware of them. He's with them. He's, he's, he's with them in that fire. And so he's preserving them in the midst of it. Nebuchadnezzar's response then is he's beginning to get it. He's, he's not all of that after all. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Still barking orders, still thinks he's large and in charge, but he recognizes something different. These are servants of the most high God. And so what, what, he's, what Daniel is trying to communicate let's say, first of all, to the, the audience that he's writing, the people in exile, is he's, he's telling them that God is with them in the furnace of exile. Now, that's not some you know, fancy term that I made up so I could make a nice point in my sermon. Deuteronomy 40, or 420 says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. So God describes the exile that they experienced in, um, in Egypt as an iron furnace. And then Isaiah speaks of uh, Israel's return. And he says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And the context for that is while they're in exile. So this, this biblical picture is this exile is a furnace. And right in the middle of the exile is an angel with them. Right in the, the, the fiery furnace of exile is this angel with them, not abandoning them, not forgetting them. And don't forget, that happened in the Exodus. It wasn't that long ago we preached through Exodus. And what came out with them was a, pie, a, a, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in the day. And it is described as his angel. So when the pillar led them to the Red Sea, the pillar moved behind Israel and stood between uh, Egypt and Israel, and is described as the angel of the Lord, looked down from there. So even in God sending his people into exile, even when he's, he's leading them out and putting them in this fiery furnace to refine them, he's right there with them. And that's the promise for us. That's what's important for us to remember is when we go through exile, when we go through uh, trying times, it's not that God has forgotten us or abandoned us. Even when he seems particularly quiet, he's there with us. 
So at the beginning of the book of Daniel, I said, our culture is changing. It's moving. It's, it's moving away from the Christianity that kind of made the West into something. And so as we're called to stand true to God, we're going to be more and more like exiles. We'll be looked down upon more and more as the, as the, the culture continues to drift. And again, that's not just from the left. It's also from the right. So as Christians, as we're standing on the biblical truth, as we're acknowledging, this is what God has told us from the far right who says that people of different color skins or different races uh, are not entitled, that white people are superior, we Christians can look at them and go, no, we're created in the image of God. All of us, we are all children of God. There's no one who is not an image of God. And so every person is worthy of some dignity. They're all to be protected. They're all to be watched over. And so the far right's going to think we're nuts. How can you say that? Look what this culture is doing to you, Christians. It's turning against you. We want this white identity. We want pure, um, a pure ethnic race. We want our culture to survive. And we're like, that's not the point. And then from the left, when the left comes and says, well, you have to acknowledge this. You have to, you have to say that abortion is okay. You can say, no, that child is made in the image of God. There's no point at which later on it gets tacked on. I made you in the womb. No, we're going to stand against abortion. When they say you have to accept homosexuality and transgender and all those things, we can say, I understand the people. I feel for the people. But male and female, God created them. And he made it so that man would leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. This isn't something we're making up to be social warriors. This is how God created the universe. And so as our culture continues to drift, we're going to find ourselves at odds with one side or the other on different issues. It's just the way it is. Can you stand in that furnace? How do you stand in that furnace? Do you claim your rights? I'm an American. You can't do this to me. That's going to increasingly be less effective. The way you do it is you remember God's difference between can't and won't. God will protect his church. He will keep her pure. He is building the church. There is a day coming when the church will stand and where Nebuchadnezzar will be judged. It's coming. We may be delivered before then. We may not. Some of us may make it. Some of us may not. But it's because God can. Not that he will, but he can. And what he's doing is in accordance with the scripture. It's his plan, his purpose to do that. So as we wind up more and more in the furnace of exile, the furnace of affliction, it's, it's not about us. It's about the God who delivers. So verse 27, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their head was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire came upon them. This is a public example. This, notice who, who's before them. It's that same list, a little abbreviated now. Maybe Daniel's hand was getting cramped, rewriting that list over and over again. But it's the same folks. God paraded them out in front of them and said, look what I have done for my people. You sure you want to worship that, that gold pillar? Are you sure that's what's going to deliver you? These guys come out, and they don't even smell like smoke. I, I never have that luck. Whenever I build a fire in the backyard, no matter where I sit, the wind is blowing the smoke on me, and I go to bed smelling like smoke. These guys didn't have smoke blowing on them. They were thrown in in the middle of the fire, and they walk out, and they don't smell. Not a hair on their head was singed. 
Their cloaks are in perfect order. And they walk out of that fiery furnace. I can't imagine what that would have looked like. And, and what Daniel calls our attention to is he does it before the watching world, the nations, the peoples, the languages. And then Nebuchadnezzar answers, and he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. He got it. He got it. It wasn't, man, these guys are really tough. Aren't they smart? He says, no, these are men of faith. This is that compelling community. There is something different about these folks. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that seek, speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses be laid in ruins, for there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. He got it. And yet, it's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He just isn't going to move. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So remember the beginning of the story? Hey, boss, those guys you appointed, they're not a band. What do they wind up with? A promotion. Good. <laughs> Let's make them in charge. So one of the questions, before we wrap this up, one of the questions that comes up is, where's Daniel in all this? Why isn't he here? Why didn't he get thrown in? And the answer is really close at hand. Look at the end of chapter 2. Daniel made a request of the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province, province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So where's Daniel? Daniel's in the king's court. He's holding business down. He didn't get drawn out of the temple or out of the, the, uh, the uh, palace. He's, he's got to hold things together. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, since they were over the province, they're out there with the rest of the guys. So to, to bring it all back together, to wrap it up real quick, when we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, I listened to about maybe two or three sermons this week, kind of checking how other people were approaching it. And often it was, weren't these wonderful men of faith? To which I say, hail, hail and amen. Yes, they were definitely men of faith. They are not the hero, are they? They're not the central thing. Look at the major dialogues that happens. Nebuchadnezzar, there's no God that can deliver you from my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, oh yeah? No, that's not what they say. They go, look, our God can, and he will, he will or he won't, and we're still going to serve him. We're not going to bow to you. It's about God. And then when they emerge from the fire, it's like, oh, nobody says anything bad about their God. No other God can deliver like that. So who's the hero of the story? It's God. So if, and I pray it doesn't happen, if you get sawn in two, you didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't that you failed or you didn't have enough faith. If you get thrown into a fire and walk out, it's not because you are so wonderful and such tremendous person of faith and just never shaken. Whatever happens, whatever is, it, whatever is coming in the next decade or two, the church is going to walk through this because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So don't put your faith in yourself. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Anybody in the room ever moved a mountain? No. You know what that means? All y'all's faith is less than a mustard seed. 
mine included, that's not the degree of it. It's not the degree of faith that counts. It's the object of faith. Will God deliver? Can God deliver? Don't make that classic mistake and let Ali get too close, thinking he can't hit me. He can. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking God can't deliver me. He can. It's up to him how and when he will. Amen.